Hello and welcome to episode 430 of the Crate and Crowbar gaming podcast being recorded on the 11th of January 2024. And a happy new year to everybody apart from the 2,619 games industry people who have already been laid off in the first 11 days of January. I'm Marsh Davis. I'm joined this evening by the large language model we trained on Chris Thurston shortly before he died of tooth crimes at the end of last year. So welcome, Automaton. Thank you. I'm a Python input. <laughs> Do you have um, any garbled or possibly libelous opinions about games that you'd like to regurgitate? I'm afraid I'm not allowed to comment on current up-to-date models as my data is based on information from the last time I looked at Twitter four <laughs> hours ago. Well, I mean, that certainly sounds like the kind of shallow collage of things the, the real Chris might have said if he hadn't have died. And um, that's good enough for me, and more importantly, our shareholders. Thank you. I'm glad you think so. The weather tomorrow. Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> Perfect. Hi, it's me. I'm back. <clears throat> <laughs> how, how are your teeth, Chris? Um, they are all still in my uh, head. Oh, that's a mistake. Yeah. Well, one of them's got to go. One of them's got to be taken out back and uh, shot. But uh, I'm going to wait until I'm through a present writing deadline before doing that, because I know my priorities. You know, I can't afford to get knocked out for a day by a dentist. I've got to write words about stuff uh, under one NDA condition or another, or I'd explain more. But yeah. Um, and that's why you should be replaced by a machine who doesn't right. feel pain. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, the some part of this process certainly should. You know what I mean? Like there's, there are certain efforts here that I could uh, offload. And honestly, also, um, while the counter argument might be that a certain amount of pain is, is part of the creative process and the stress we experience as creative people when making things ideally of meaning for other people is part of that meaning and contributes to it. Uh, I don't think wisdom tooth pain counts. Um, I actually found out that a colleague at work um, had incredible wisdom tooth pain at exactly the same time as me, and it was the same tooth. And that is a degree of like cross-disciplinary game dev alignment that I think is too far. <laughs> we talk a lot about how to keep people on the same page and a big project over time, lots of different disciplines engaged in it. Uh, that's the endless story of games, uh, games development for everyone I know on teams of any size. Um, but it is, it turns out, possible to be too aligned. I certainly think it's, it's definitely been the case this year. I don't know if it's been similar for you, but had a, a nice break in many regards and then came back and my first week back realized, oh, I'm knackered still. And I don't know if like, I, I've been noticing this more and more since probably the late years of the pandemic, but like when you feel like, oh, I think I'm probably the tiredest person in this room. And then you look around and everyone's just feeling exactly the same way. <laughs> Cause it can't be like, that can't be something that's happening in the psychosphere. Can it? That can't be some, you know, wound <laughs> in our psychic gestalt causing us all to be knackered. Can it? Maybe it is. Well, Alex wrote an interesting piece on his blog. I don't know if you saw this about how because um, he he got um, he got COVID at the end of last year, um, and his recovery was very very slow. And he, he went through this period where he was angsting about it, wondering whether he was just being a wimp because you know all of society is <laughs> and governments are telling us that we're being wimps and we should just get over this thing. Um, but then he he luckily had technology to prove that he wasn't being a wimp and that his uh, I think his Apple Watch was monitoring his his available levels of oxygen in his blood and they were rock bottom 
for the entire duration. It apparently synced up perfectly with how he felt as he recovered from that. Yeah. But um, I'm sure like everybody, you know, like uh, uh, nearly everybody in the world who has undergone this disease and are now being told that they need to be fine. I mean, that's that cognitive dissonance by itself, even putting aside the symptoms of the actual illness must be wrecking people's mental health. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, I mean, this is obviously a, a bouncy subject to kick off the first podcast to try to before. <laughs> but, um, but I do think, I mean, I've been thinking about this recently for my own case that, um, you know, and to, to not talk about fun video game things for a moment, but like, I think I've become better at recognizing, and this is maybe specific to me. I don't know how universal this is, but I'm generally pretty bad at recognizing what my brain and body are telling me it needs. You know, I'm a creature of routine in a lot of ways, and I'm ha- hopefully happy, capable of developing healthy routines. But um, sometimes that can come at the expense of, you know, uh, heeding wired as you might be tired or stressed or anxious in a given moment. And that can get so kind of bundled up and commodified as part of, you know, programs of mindfulness or other sorts of things. And actually, I found it sort of helpful to try and get down to just the basics of like, how do I feel right now? And why do I feel like I feel that way? And it can be, you know, and usually it's I'm hungry, or I'm tired, um, or I need a break from the things that I feel like I have to do. Um, But all of that presupposes that it is safe and secure to do those things, uh, to take that break or to have a sleep or get to bed early. And I feel like we, I mean, and I appreciate, you know, I live in a, in a tremendously privileged position and, and I'm very fortunate in many, many ways. So I can only speak from that lim- extremely limited lens, but it does, I do have this feeling that whatever social or societal safety net has traditionally existed to support people, both in this country and the UK and certainly in America as well, these are among people that I speak to regularly it's just far less, it feels far less there than it's ever been. <laughs> you know what I mean? That mm. it's sort of eroded to a point of, um, you know, uh, the things that keep you safe are the, the, the fortunate position you may have found yourself in with regards to home, job, other forms of support. That there's nothing else. And I, I don't know how true that is, and I don't know how to sound doom saying, but actually the, the dentist thing, the tooth thing, as much as we've dwelled on it, because it's something been on my mind, is actually a really good example of this. Like just the fact that it's like now, frankly, impossible to get a dentist on the NHS in the UK. That's just gone, right? It's a postcode lottery to the point that like, if you live in like a couple of handful of places in the UK, maybe. Otherwise, literally stories in the papers this week of pensioners wrenching out their own teeth with pliers because there's no dental treatment available to them. And it's like, Mm. not to get too political on this podcast, but (laughs) fucking hell, you know? Like, I'm very lucky I can afford private dental care. Um, I do not take that for granted. But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, late capitalism, truly the worst. Would an AI have said that? I think not. Well, the AI would not be allowed to tell you how to deal with it, and nor am I. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, so I didn't think that would be the that would be the the note to to kick things off on. But well, there's um, literally no way to segue from that. To, to yeah. What fun? What what fun uh, distractions <laughs> have we coddled ourselves with lately? Um, oh, yeah. can I can I start with something? Mm. Because actually, yeah, please. this this has an, uh, a large language model link to it, and uh, that may also 
segue into something you want to talk about in a very circuitous way. Sure. But I just It's a fairly brief mention of South Scrimshaw Part 1, uh, <clears throat> which is a free visual novel. It was recommended to me, or just in general, it wasn't recommended personally to me, by um, a guy called Joel Otterson. Uh, he wrote his Games of the Year blog, and I think he works for Improbable. Anyway, his Game of the Year list included a bunch of different things I happen to like a lot. Um, so I thought I'd take a punt on this, which was his top pick uh, for the last year. Um, even though I'm, I'm, I, I wouldn't normally have considered playing playing it, but it's um, it's really excellent. It's a really excellent piece of science fiction masquerading as a wildlife documentary on the mm. life cycle of whales. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> However, as becomes quickly apparent, these whales are not our whales. But they are the whales of an alien ocean, not a distant planet. And how they came to be there and why they are superly, superficially similar to our whales are little mysteries that you sort of tease out uh, by inference from the narration. Uh, which is like this sort of Attenborough-style documentary narration. And it's really beautifully illustrated. Uh, and it's uh, I found it very moving in the way that, you know, is true to many nature documentaries, which, you know, in- mm. include the brutal realities of of, of life um, in a way which is deeply tragic. But it, it's really, I think it's really great and it's absolutely worth playing. It won't set you back. It's free. It won't set you back too many hours either. Um but it is let down by the way it's voiced, uh, which appears to be generated. Um, mm. I, I think some of it may not have been generated, and then l- fill-in lines were generated. Um, but on the whole, just the the way it's read feels really undercooked for the kind of Attenborough style narration they're going for. But reasonably frequently, it also just completely bungles the emphasis. Which is a shame because it's very well written and very good observation of that style of documentary writing. Um, but then I got thinking, well, you know, it's a shame, but perhaps the project wouldn't work at all without any dialogue, and this was the only way in which dialogue could be obtained on the zero budget, which was pres- presumably available uh, to make the game. And even though I'm somebody who is probably already losing work to Chat GPT and Midjourney and so forth. I was wondering if, you know, would I have wanted to have not played this game <laughs> because mm. voice work was outside of the developer's budget? And I, I think I am glad I played it. I'm glad it exists even despite that. And then I was trying to, con- you know, uh, convince myself that voice generation isn't as unethical as other forms of, like, large language models because they haven't necessarily, they've usually, you know, bought the rights to use uh, an actor's voice or what have they. Um, they haven't, like massively scraped all artists in existence without consent usually to create yeah they a, haven't a leaked a big document of all the people they've scraped <laughs> i know <laughs> cheers paul canavan uh, here's your forthcoming lawsuit hopefully um but yeah I, the results however are shit ultimately and it would be miles and miles better with a real actor but they got the thing made and i was wondering what, sort of what, what's your take on that like uh, it is it okay to use these things well, so if, if there's no other option for you to get a creative product to the finish line without using them? I presumably, so is this free, this game? Yes, I assume part one is free. A lot of these things, like part two and so forth, are not free, but I, I don't know what, what model they're, they're going with here. Yeah, so, I mean, and obviously it sounds extremely indie, right? and that's, I think, it's, it's less, this is such a big subject, <laughs> we can pick this apart from so many different angles, but... 
I think this is this is certainly the case, the use case where it's easiest to be sympathetic, right? Um, where one of the, I think, aspirational uses of generative tech, I kind of prefer, like, you know, AI is so loaded in some ways, but like this kind of generation to assist content creation for games is that it can raise the floor for, you know, developers without the budget or team size to achieve a certain effect, right? As other tools can, as more accessible game engines did and so Mm. on, right? You know, a few, you know, decade ago plus, it was far less uh, possible for a small, very, you know, independent developer or a solo developer starting out to make a game in 3D, for example, um, or to achieve certain things at a certain speed. That, I think, is laudable. I think the the provenance of the data that the model is trained on is important <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day. Um, there are certainly, there are, there are several now uh, voice software companies that, you know, use material voice, you know, voice performances drawn from actors who are compensated for that work. That is the most ethical way to go about this, really. But I think really what it highlights is, you know, there's probably, hopefully, in a, in a in a brighter future for this technology, a world where AI resources or generative resources act a bit like um, Creative Commons libraries, right? Where it's effectively a pool of material you can draw from. Like there are there are games made that could could not have been made without the use of one or many of the sound effect libraries that exist online, right? Under Creative Commons licensing, Creative Commons licensing is a thing, right? Yeah. There is a way to create something and certify it for use from the wider world and even place some reasonable limitations on that in terms of commercial use, free use, and so on. That These are not that's not a perfect solve problem. It doesn't account for, you know, all of the ways that a kind of, you know, the <laughs> capitalist model of creativity can fuck this up, but it exists. And honestly, that would be the environment, like a Creative Commons approved generator of things mm. um, where I think that could help because there are certainly benefits to things like localization. I think... Really, when you talk about the righteous use of AI, it's pretty much always going to be about accessibility, whether that's accessibility to access to creativity for game developers, as in this case, or if it's about like assistive tools for people who might otherwise struggle to access these experiences. Um, you know, that is the most righteous use of ChatGPT is to help people communicate in circumstances or in languages they might not otherwise be able to, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not to help them do work that they are not personally capable of. That's a distinct thing. But yeah, um, I just feel like from that position, we could break into this subject in a ton of different ways. Because I've got very strong feelings about the use of, of AI for game writing, particularly and where it is and isn't useful. Hmm. I think I think there's... the And I'm, I'm wary of going too far down the rabbit hole without pausing for breath. But I would say this. I think at its baseline, uh, the technology that we have at the moment is fast. That is like the one quality you can say about it that's consistently true, right? Like you both write and draw, Marge. And I imagine ChatGPT is technically capable of doing those things faster than you can. So it certainly is. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and without, as you said earlier, the pain, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, and so speed, right? Efficiency. That's the point of it. It's not we get so distracted talking about the quality of the output or whether the output is distinguishable from 
the data that was used to train it or distinguishable from work by other artists or distinguishable from truth in the case of like using AI as a research tool. But really, it's just about speed. That's the, that's the only measure that matters. Therefore, it's an efficiency tool. And what I would contend is that creativity is not an efficiency problem and nor is entertainment. Um, programming is a lot of the time. Software, software development certainly can be an efficiency problem. And, you know, but like making things of meaning to people is not. And as people who make things, you can make intentional choices about what you wish to be meaningful. I think actually a, a thing that, can be a real issue in all kinds of collaborative media is like when people set their targets in different places. But generally speaking, if we all want to make things that are enjoyable as meaningful, enjoy, enjoyable and or meaningful, that just takes time. That just takes time. And I don't think AI, which can't really climb above the efficient level in terms of how it assesses its own success, can help beyond a certain point. Have you used uh, ChatGPT in any of the stuff you've written? I mean, no. uh, in not any professionally. Form? I mean, I've played with it as a tool and as a toy. Yeah. I haven't used it in any way um, as part of anything I've done professionally or even like for even for personal use. I've dabbled with like, you know, um, toyed with all of the generative models because they are interesting. But um, I don't, yeah, I, the, the way I would frame it is this, because this is very pertinent to, because in the use case that you're talking about, was it um, South Scrimshaw? Let me scroll up and find out what the name was. Yes, <laughs> South, South Scrimshaw. Scrimshaw. Like in that case, that is being used to provide an entire feature that let's say was inaccessible to the developer, right? Like can't get an actor for this, can't afford it. Fine. I mean, there's probably other methods, frankly, but whatever. Um, in the case of... The way I see it is if you're willing to automate the production of something, then you either don't care about it very much because you're not willing to invest in it, either time or resource or money, or you need so much of it that, that it becomes too expensive for it to do it manually. Right? One of those two things kind of has to be true. You either don't care or you need tons of it. But if you need tons of it, then you are explicitly in the context of game creation, but this would apply to other in other contexts. You're also creating, you, presumably you need tons of it because you intend for players to encounter tons of it. Right, you wouldn't need tons of it if your design scaled in a way that didn't require tons of content in particular of a particular kind. If that is the case, then we loop back around to you not caring about it because it's then something that you expect the player to see tons of, but you don't really care how it's made. <laughs> and that, and at that point, I think you just reassess the design of your game because you're just saying like, well, it's a bit like I know this this isn't going to fly unless we fill it with packing peanuts to a certain extent. It's like, well, maybe just don't like, <laughs> like, like yes. maybe build something else like that's And that's the, like, when you think ahead with this tech, it's like the use of it is answering a problem you, you shouldn't have in a robust design a lot of the time. Now, the thing that fills in there is expectation, like where genre expectation or competitor expectation is like, well, I'll, and we're getting towards this example because I know it's looming on the horizon. <laughs> other games of this kind, other competitive shooters have extensive voice acting. <laughs> we're not doing that. But in order to be seen as a peer in this space, in this genre, we have to have it. Therefore, we get back to efficiency problem. But still, I think it communicates not really caring about the thing. And I wouldn't normally get kind of ad hominem about like that because I really hate ever saying the word lazy with regards to game development because fuck knows it's not. But it just seems to me like a questionable place to seek efficiency 
when you're talking about something so player facing as that. That's interesting. So the the example that we're edging towards here is the finals, which yep. is a competitive shooter, um, free to play, I believe. And they've said, uh, you had to correct me about this earlier, because I thought that they had used generated voices as part of like an extended, not exactly a beta, but like the the early live, the early yeah. stages of their live game while they're still trying to figure things out. So they can be super reactive. They don't need to book sessions with VO artists in order to change something that, you know, would otherwise take them a couple of minutes. Um, and that seems like I can see how that is a really desirable use case because during the early stages of any live game, things change a great deal. Mm-hmm. And you do want to be agile and you don't necessarily want to, to uh, wait for voice lines to be recorded and come in in order to be able to change, make big changes. So I don't, I don't really know how I feel about that. But then my, my assumption was that they were intending to ultimately voice the lines properly in due course. But I, I now know that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. You've actually played the finals. I can't sing, seem to boot up a single game of it because the servers give me an error every single time. Huh. But um, you know more than I do. Is it is it acceptable <laughs> in the way so, it comes out in the game? Like, yeah, like, I really want to talk about that. I played a lot of the finals, and it's really the game I want to talk about. But let's. I want to let's 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 do the and talk about the AI side of it first because I think it's really interesting as a case study. It made me. It's made me wince in sympathy, in a way where it's like, ooh. This this feels because I, I don't I can't think of too many games of its it's not it's not hugely high profile in the sense of like a triple A thing from a major publisher it's by Embark Studios which is I believe headed up by Patrick Soderlund who's bit EA um, so it's not a small company by any means but certainly a kind of it's a it's a midweight developer punching up I think having had a big success with this free to play shooter and there's lots of things I want to say about it I think it's really interesting um, and it's clear that like they've also I think that one of the first games that I can think of to openly talk about using AI to generate a big chunk of the content in the game, in this case, all of the voiceover. And I think there's a few angles to draw in on, like rather than getting kind of lost in the, obviously I'll talk about the effectiveness, um, but you can tell it's generated. Um, it's it's impressive. Like certainly it's impressive. Like, technology is impressive, but uh, there are the things that you say. There are weird intonations. There's a there's a flat nature to the performance, and I don't want to like. There's you know there's that uncanny valley effect that a lot of AI generated stuff has at the moment, whether it's text, art, or otherwise, where it's like close enough, but the the nth percentile that it's wrong makes all the difference. The other thing is, I and if I'm wrong about this, I would happily be corrected. If there's someone at that studio who's who would correct me on this. I think the text is AI generated as well. And I think that's the thing that kills it. I get strong Ooh. suspicion that either it was generated and then edited by a human, which is the most common use case for it, or just generated because there is a pattern to ChatGPT or this kind of text generation that you pick up over time. Like, you know, it's fairly obvious, like strange repetition that isn't grammatically incorrect, but you wouldn't write where it's something like, um, there's like a, you know, the, the setup for the game is like it's a futuristic VR game show and, you know, the levels are sponsored. There's something of like Trackmania to it, something of Wipeout to it, like that kind of thing. It's all like a, a show that's being put on and there'll be like, you know, thank you to our sponsors. And then occasionally, you know, and there's, there's two commentators and they talk to each other and one of them will say like the reliance aren't dynamic, like they are from pre-recorded set and you hear a lot of repetition. 
But one of the lines will be something like, real mayhem in the arena today, thanks to our sponsors. And then the other one will say, yes, thanks to our sponsors, there's a level of mayhem that wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for our sponsors. And it's like, that's not incorrect, but I can't mm. think of a professional writer in games who would write that, right? Like, Yeah. I mean, that's uh, the, the opposite of the use case I was describing, really, because the, the, the use case I was imagining was where the there's a specific intentionality in the writing which has to change, like tutorializing something, you know, something in the UI changes, they have to change the line, which tutorializes that. That's the That's the situation I was imagining where generated voice would become useful if it's just bump <laughs> then just get well, somebody to write that stuff yeah it, so they they are doing that other thing as well right there are a lot of like events in the game things that can happen like random modifiers and it is cool that the the voice is sensitive to that right the commentators will call it out when like a new mod- modifier is in play or something like that um obviously in the moment i've explained what the game actually is to kind of make this make sense but <laughs> that stuff there isn't so much of it that it needs to be like super dynamic. They've definitely given themselves room to change it, but it's notably flat. Like it is the, the writing is notably lifeless, I think. And um, it doesn't feel like an aesthetic decision. It just feels odd. Um, and the, because arguably this use of text to voice basically could be a way to have a lot of really reactive, funny lines of voice in the game. You know, obviously you can't account for delivery because I strongly suspect, uh, slash I'm pretty sure an actor would always do a better job of that. But you could get pretty specific in, in nuanced, interesting ways, right? And they haven't done that. And also there's no edge to it. Like the, the contrast to this, which I'll, I'll throw in this as an, as an example is, um, and I'm sorry for going here, but Dota 2 is a far better written and performed <laughs> games than it has any right to be. This is actually super relevant here. So apologies. Uh-huh. <laughs> but and it's partly because, right? And I, I've had, you know, I was friends with people on that writing team for a while. To my understanding, Valve and its wheelie desk based, you know, kind of assignment policy found itself in a position where Valve had a decent crop of very good, very funny writers. And, you know, not a, like, and there was not you know, no reason for them not to contribute to Dota 2, right? To write extensive agonizing puns to write weird microfiction into the game to fill characters voice lines with tons of really specific references and conditional moments all of those things that you'd expect to be enabled by text to voice in another context in that case they had a big raft of voice actors come and record it all um but as as a, as as such it's a very difficult for them to change it right like they're now in a position that as you point out the develop um, embark the developers of the finals are avoiding by being able to generate new voice lines on the fly, uh, or at the very least the voice, the vocal performance of them. Um, this is really funny in Dota at the moment. Like Dota's always had these power-ups that spawn on the map called runes. Uh, one of them since the dawn of time has been the double damage rune. It, it It's a double damage rune. It gives you double damage. That's what it does. Um, for the first time in the time that I've, since I've been playing the game recently, an epochal moment has happened. It's not double anymore. For balance reasons, it's now basically 160%, and it applies <laughs> to some other abilities, and it applies to some like uh, uh, magical attacks and things that it didn't used to apply to. And so now, calling it the double damage rune doesn't make any sense. So it's now called the amplify damage rune. That makes sense, except 10 plus years ago, a whole bunch of very funny writers wrote fucking tons of voice lines punning on the double damage nature of the thing. <laughs> and so they haven't removed any of that. So loads of characters, so you, you know, um, 
you will pick up the Amplify Damage rune, and a new player playing it today we would play that, and their wizard they're controlling will go, ah, double damage, which is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and you know, you can't get like John Patrick Lowry back in the booth to go like, ah, technically Amplify Damage. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that is the that is the situation that they've dodged with the finals, but there's like there's a value provided to Dota and its feel by the uh the the amount of daft jokes, for example. It just makes it a little bit of a livelier place to spend time. Um that I don't think the finals can achieve because it's kind of flat and characterless. And it there are moments where it's like this would be a loud enough game if this wasn't happening. You know? Like, um and that's part of it. What I will say, and I think this is to kind of land it on a practical thing. I think it's really interesting if you read the Steam reviews of the game, watching the use of AI be- become a stick to beat the developer with. And if I were to be more mercenary for a moment and like zoom out from that and be like, well, what, what would developers have to concern themselves with? It's that the use of AI is being interpreted by people who want to criticize the game as evidence that the developers are cheaping out on the game, that they're under-investing in it, Right. Because from player perspective, they're not, and obviously these aren't reasonable positions, but I think you can take the temperature of how something is affecting the experience from how unreasonable people react to it. And in this case, it's, well, clearly the developers don't care about this game, they're using AI. Or clearly they don't have the budget to make this game better in the ways that I want, they're using AI. Now that is spurious logic, right? It clearly is. It's like the same as when uh, someone says like, well, you could afford to add these PvP maps, so why haven't you added a new ten-hour campaign or something? Right, like it's it's that happens all the time, but it's it's grounded in how people are perceiving the development of the game, and it's interesting to me that the use of AI tech isn't like, wow, they've embodied cutting-edge technology into this game; they must care about it. It's being taken as, wow, they've used a time-saving tool, therefore they don't. And that's, mm. yeah, and that's, those are sides of a coin. And it's just interesting which way that round that's landed. And obviously that will, that's, that's a reputational thing. There's PR management that can happen there. But yeah, it's interesting that already the reputation of AI is like, oh, they've done this kind of cringe thing, <laughs> which is the death knell for most things. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I do worry how, um, how, well, there's a mixture of different things. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's an intentional level of obfuscation about what AI is on the part of uh, the boosters of AI. And they've yeah. been very keen to kind of consolidate as many different things into the, the brand of AI to, in order to promote it. But I think ultimately that's now going to have a backlash where any and all uses of AI are, are as you say, used as a stick to beat people with or are... You know, just dismissed as amoral in of, of themselves and we've had ai in games for ages and yeah you know as uh, the things that in yesteryear were called ai are now simply called programs <laughs> and uh there's many legitimate artistic uses of ai in video games yeah and i worry that any settlement by uh unions uh, game game developer unions on the usage of AI will have to be so carefully and precisely worded into in order to carve out many exceptions for legitimate uses of AI versus ones which, uh, regardless of their their merit as a form of uh, producing content, are primarily des- designed to to seek the removal of jobs from the marketplace. 
and I don't know where you can really draw that line between those two things. It's going to be very worrying <laughs> to see this play out. Yeah, I think it's, and yeah, and that's the, I feel like I was talking to a friend about this earlier in the week. I'm thinking a lot about this lately because obviously at one point in time, I wrote a video game about AI and it's been weird watching. Immoral, Chris. Yeah. Immoral. Well, it's been weird watching this reaction roll out as it's become a bigger possibility. I'll say that. And like, there's, I think like generative systems have their own modes of expression that they're good at. Right. And I think those, a lot of those are yet to be discovered. You know, there are, you know, there's a tradition, there are, there are, there are artistic and literary traditions that this could plug into things like automatic writing, for example, that you can, you can play with, um, how people have a relationship with text that was not generated by an author, for example, right? Like, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a fascinating impact on the way we think about how we receive information and, and interesting challenges to, you know, it, for a long time, you think about the amount of work done in the 20th century by uh, literary scholars to kill the author, you know what I mean? And then, yeah. in, uh, then in, in a world where where believable, gener- like truly generated tech, and obviously the the caveat there, the asterisk there is, collaged out of existing material, but where you know LLMs didn't exist, and then suddenly it is actually possible to have an author free text, and everyone's freaking out, the gods. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 funny. It's very funny from a certain point of view. <laughs> you know the the speed with which Roland Barth is spinning is, um, I think, uh, an energy-generating force, potentially. Um, but the reason I say that is, like, I think there is a there is a positive engagement with this, which is about finding the things that it's good at and leaning into them. And a lot of those things could be games, because interacting with reactive systems is a cool thing to do in a video game. What I think it's, I feel like it's just marketing at this point, is this notion that these systems can or should accurately or seamlessly replace the things humans are good at and the perspectives that humans have. And I can understand why that's the marketing push because it always is. The push is never this technology will allow us to experience something we can't do in other contexts or that we haven't experienced before. It is always this will be a new frontier of realism, for example, or this will be a new, uh, a, a more efficient way uh, to replace something or automate something we're already doing. And the, the example I would give is, I feel like with the exception of something like the new Avatar film, the conversation around like photoreal CGI has changed dramatically since the days when people were saying the word uncanny valley all the time, right? And once that settled down, the trends in cinematic animation, at least, are nothing to do with like an arms race towards realism and everything to do with interesting uses of the medium, right? Like I'm trying to think about like, you know, the the debate around CGI photorealism era from like the circa the release of like Polar Express versus, I don't know, the Spider-Verse films, right? And like yeah. what people find kind of worthwhile in that medium 
when the sort of the tech fervor calms down, which is often about leaning into the strengths of the media. Anyway, I don't want to get too lost in that. The I just think that trying to replace a, a human concept artist with an AI is pointless. Trying Treating AI-generated concept art, if it was ethically produced, as a counterpart tool that does something different has merit to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's possible. But the, the, the problem the companies pushing AI have is that there is no obvious profit incentive for people to do something interesting and different, whereas axing workers is a very obvious yep. profit yep. incentive for bosses. And this is, I, I, that's, I mean, AI itself, the, the, at the scale that they are producing, the large language models, they, they aren't cheap and they aren't free, even though currently they are to the end user in a lot of cases. But those, it's just that the costs, the massive, massive costs of them are currently being underwritten yep. with the hope that those companies become massively profitable in the future. And the only way in which, the only way in which they see the kinds of profits they need is by offering bosses the ability to massively axe their workforces. And then once that has happened and there is a reduction in talent that could do this work otherwise, then the cost of AI will rocket back up again. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and all of these businesses that thought they were they were making hay by axing their workforces. Wow, that's a mixed metaphor. Um, <laughs> I drop hay when I die. I don't know about you. <laughs> that would be interesting. That was like the like in the finals where people burst into money. This would be yeah. the kind of the, the death state in farming simulator where yeah, people just like, burst into hay yeah. and, a, and a donkey comes and lazily chews at you. Um, but yeah, all, all the companies that currently think that, wow, yeah, let's get rid of our workforce and let's double down on AI. They're going to, I mean, it's not going to be, they must be able to predict this if an idiot like me can, then this, <laughs> that profit margin isn't going to exist for very long once there's uh, once they are effectively captured and de-skilled their workforce. Well, it's almost like, I mean, it's funny. I want to say something fucking radical now. It's almost like when you have, you're trying to discuss the creative merit of a technology that is being developed and touted by people who depend on, I'm fucking going to, imagine there's some BBC air quotes around the words I'm about to say, stealing and lying to inflate the valuation <laughs> of their companies in order to get technology funded that they can then sell to other people who want to, uh, wreck their companies and savage the output of their creative enterprises in order to uh, themselves cash out. And when the combination of these two craven acts results in the widespread destruction of both, you know, functioning creative enterprises and people's individual lives and careers, that's bad. <laughs> right it's like no it's like I, I really cannot i cannot discuss past a certain point the merits of a certain new kind of crayon when i know that it is made in the puppy grinder like <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like even when we all understand there is a different way to make this crayon but unfortunately the the man with his hand on the lever he just he just can't stop cranking he just can't <laughs> and he won't and the system demands that he never stops. <laughs>
he just had a yeah. Um, like yeah, it's it's grim. I mean, it's 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 pat to say it, but it's really like <laughs> an assistive tool that should make our lives easier and less expensive. Um, is not something that should be entrusted to capitalism. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. <laughs> like it can't be trusted with this. You know, uh, it really can't. I say it there. I mean those dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, now we've solved that issue, oh, perhaps fuck. you could tell me about the, uh, the experience yeah. of actually playing the finals. Yes. So, yeah, because I I, I, um, I I wrote in my notes for this, I've written two sections. One is, this game's really good, and the other is called Vibes Failures. <laughs> and the, the under Vibes Failures is just the phrase AI, and we've covered that. It's taken us 40-odd minutes, but we've covered it. Um, <laughs> there's one other, but I'll get to it. So the finals is really interesting. Like, I will say this, right? Like, they have built... Um, I think one of the most interesting new multiplayer shooters that I have played since Titanfall, easily. Um, in terms of giving me that familiar feeling of if this game had emerged in the late '90s or the early '90s, it would now be considered a classic. You know, it's it's in that Counter Strike, Tribes, Team Fortress territory of uh, threading together a whole bunch of different systems and feeling substantially unlike any other game, I think. And that's really rare um, and definitely to be celebrated. So the setup for the finals is this. Uh, you are competitors in a future VR game show. Um, you enter, destruct in teams of three, uh, you enter destructible environments that are drawn from real world locations of the past and future past present and future so monaco 2014 for some reason seoul 2023 las vegas 2032 and so on and um all pretty attractively realized the art style is somewhere between like um something like i said trackmania like in mirror's edge and a few other things uh with the exception of the character models which i'll get to but yeah that's it that's the only other vibes failure um and in these environments you're entering your teams of three, and it'll either be three teams of three or four teams of three, except if you're in a particular like finale, which we two. And uh, initially, um, some cash boxes spawn in different locations on the map, and you have to go and kind of free them, which takes a certain amount of time, and then take those cash boxes to cash out points, which are basically like big yellow ATMs. And then the team, that, when the cash box, it takes a couple of minutes for it to kind of absorb the money. And when that process finishes, whichever team controls it when it finishes gets a whole bunch of money in their bank account. And after a certain amount of time, one of those teams wins. That sounds really simple. What makes it really clever is partly the multi-team setup, but also the destructibility of the environment and the really elaborate physics and systems for tons of different stuff. The game is full of gadgets, explosives, sticky mines, bombs. Everyone's got a kind of just the ability to be a gravity gun for different things in the environment. And the buildings are meaningfully destructible. Um, you know, you can't completely unmake the level, but you can lay waste to it pretty substantially. And so, you know, those cash boxes, even those ATMs I'm talking about, those are physics objects, they're heavy physics objects. But um, let's say there's a team defending their cash out and they are holed up in the top floor of a building in the Monaco level with this kind of like windy European streets. 
and they have really built a nice little defensive position for themselves. They've blown out a wall to give themselves sort of a sniper position. They've set up automated turrets. There's mines in the stairwell. You might try, maybe they've put up like force field shields. There's, there's tons of gadgets. Maybe you send in a character with a little invisibility cloak and they run into the floor below and they put a, like a shape charge on the floor and blow out the floor and the cash machine just falls through the floor. And now you're fighting in a completely different environment. It's a really clever, because destructible environments or chaotic environments like that can just lead to chaos. But the way that is balanced against team composition, strategy, and a bunch of other mechanics makes it like about orchestrating incredibly strategic heist style plays under time pressure and while getting shot at against other people constantly. And it, really is very very cool there's loads of little this type like but past that point that's the kind of the high concept um and then the kind of structure is you either play like a quick play mode but the heart of it is in this like tournament process where um initially eight teams enter they play two matches so there's as in two matches happen concurrently so two groups of four teams going separately and then the top two teams from those two bracket those two matches go to the next bracket they all play each other then the top two teams from that play a final and that kind of like seeded bracket thing is actually really exciting um uh there's hmm. tons of mechanics around like how to edge ahead in terms of the money and so on um and that's why it's called the finals because the goal is to get to the final round and then win and um and then past that past that structure the value of it comes from just the depth of systems. So, um, and this is where it's really expandable. And this is where it kind of makes the case, I think, for some of the AI-generated commentary. So um, the maps will always spawn with the time of day, weather modifiers, and with often much more substantial modifiers, which could be, well, in this version of the map, the cash-out stations were all initially, at least, in suspended platforms above the level, or on a tram that moves around the level. Or halfway through the level, aliens invade and start creating vac like gravity funnels that pull things upwards. Wow. Or meteors come from the sky and start destroying buildings. Or there's an orbital laser which will fire at anyone who stands still for very long, which is this awesome. <laughs> which is either like an anti-camping strategy, but then you realize like, hang on. In that case, in this case, it's like, hang on, that team's holed up in the top floor of this building. If we just stand still underneath them the orbital laser will hit them, which forces them to come get us. Like, it's that stuff. Uh. It's really clever. Like, it's sort of um, because, and this is what I think I love about it, as someone who loves a lot of competitive games, it resists pure playbook mechanics. Like, this is how we play this map or how this is how we play this moment. There is some of that, but you it, you have to adapt to a lot of things you can't control. And I think that's what I've always loved about Dota. Sorry, I said it twice in a podcast, but... It is really good. Like that that side of it is really, really interesting and really, really promising. And um, you know, there's there's just so many systems. There's poison gas, there's sticky goo that you can use to make walls. You can there's a building system basically where you can build jump pads and stuff. And that's a really good example. You make a jump pad, it throws you fifty meters into the air, you can use it to get to rooftops. Cool. But what about a scenario where you're already defending a point really high up in the level and it's only really accessible by a staircase? And you angle the jump out at the top of the stairs, so someone running up the stairs just gets fucking boinged out of the level. <laughs> and you can destroy it. Then that player then has to think about how do I destroy that jump pad? Could I put a zip line down or use a grappling hook or find a different way up? 
And yeah, I, I really can't think of another thing like it. it. It has some of the precision and like tactics of like a Counter Strike, but it happens in like fast forward with a million gadgets exploding at the same time. Very, very cool. Is it is it suitably chaotic enough that there can be no meta? I don't think so. And and this is so well. I think the meta will always shift. Like if you look at videos, because I've gotten to the point of liking it enough to start watching some videos. And actually, I will say this: if you start playing it, play some quick play, play the tutorial. Then honestly, watch a couple of videos. There's a, YouTube's full of it. Just watch a couple of guides because there are ways to play that are far more kind of effective than others. And there's, hmm. there's, there's, it reminds me of the tribes in that regard, where it's like a big toolkit of options, but actually there is there are principles that's worth knowing, right? Like, because if you start, like, Tribes is a good example. If you start playing Tribes fresh, no one tells you, well, in the old games, no one tells you to ski, right? Like, that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, and the, in, those are the things that are worth learning. It's kind of similar. Because there is, there is like a meta, but any, and, but there's been quite a lot of patches, like at any given time, if something's wildly, like for a while, the most powerful thing, like the, the, there are three classes, light, medium, and heavy, and they have profoundly different amounts of health, which is kind of interesting. The heavy has access to like a very powerful C4, like sticky bomb, and you can attach it to things. You can attach it to static objects. And so one of the most powerful things to do, because it has like an arming time, which should mitigate your ability to use it reactively is like fucking stick it to a lawn chair, wait for it to arm pick up the lawn chair and throw it at someone. <laughs> and you've just created an incredibly powerful grenade. Um, or combo that with other things. Like there are explosive barrels that like rocket off like fire extinguishers when you activate them. So you can attach a shape charge to that and then use it as a rocket, um, which is very funny. But yeah, so it's like, but that was obviously kind of like being abused so that they just don't stick to those things anymore. Fine, they fixed it. I think the meta will always move around. But what I will say is it is unforgiving. Like it is, and this is where, so I remember I said this in chat after I started playing it because I know that Jamie's been playing it and Graham's played a lot of it. Um, I was like, I don't know if this is a great game or it's complete dog shit because it's really good. It will make you feel fucking awful. Like it is utterly unforgiving. And truthfully also, Every decision they have made makes it more grim uh, to not be doing the right thing. Because I'll say this, like, so uh, and the caveat to this, um, I haven't, like, managed to play it with friends yet. So I haven't had the experience of, um, like, actually, like, which I really want of, like, team comms and a group of three. And three is a really friendly number for getting a team together of friends. I haven't managed to do that, so I've been reliant on like solo play with strangers, and that has been good at times, really good at times, and sometimes really, really, really dreadful. Because for this kind of game, like three is a really punishing team size because there's no, there's no room for error, right? Like you're down a person, you're down a huge amount. If someone quits, rage quits, which you're discouraged from doing. People do do it, but equally, if someone's just not on the same page or isn't pulling their weight, like it's it's a grind and um is that different from hunt though or other multiplayer games i think hunt is similar but hunt is also well hunt is both a slower experience in that there's more time to kind of learn you know like i don't think too many people play hunt with random teammates really 
but which this is that's the that that's the only way to play this. Um, if you're playing by yourself. Um, but also in hunt, you fuck up and you die. Well, it's over, right? Roll the dice again. In this, because it's like cashing out, you know, these cash like a game is like between ten and twenty minutes. Usually. Oh, so you respawn in this, do you? Yes, so I shall, I'll talk about the respawn mechanic in a minute. But yes, you do respawn. It's not like Counter-Strike where you're just out, right? You can get disqualified from the tournament, but that'll be out after a round, right? Hmm. And I have had games where within 30 seconds of the beginning of a 20-minute game, I've known we're fucked. Because I'm just, I'm like, the the team is not going to work. And I had a moment earlier today, actually I was playing on my lunch break, where I... It was kind of a weird one, and this is going to sound so humble braggy, so people hate this. But like, I think I'm getting better <laughs> at it, and I'll have games where like I'm the one lagging behind, and other people are like cleaning up. And I tend to play like the support class sort of stuff, so I'm doing a lot of healing and reviving and running around, and sort of trying to support from the midfield, like the kind of anchor position stuff. And then I had a game earlier today where I I was carrying incredibly hard, and I took a screenshot of it because <laughs> I was like, because I think when I ended the game, you get like you get scores for like combat support objectives and so on and i had like four to eight times by myself what the other two people on my team had mm-hmm. and it was and we got to the final round because i managed to do a steal in the last minute that flipped us into the top two of the semi-finals and and then in the final round it completely collapsed because i was just with two dinguses and there's no other way to describe <laughs> it they were just they're just sweet little dinguses they couldn't be they couldn't blame for what they were doing they were just running jumping and shooting and there's a lot more to game than that. And it was like, you just run, shooting, and dying. Run, jump, shoot, and dying. Not reviving, not doing anything else. I accidentally pressed the button on my standing desk right then, made my whole desk go down at moments. That was alarming. Um, <laughs> and and I say that in full knowledge that there have been scenarios where it's me, I'm the dingus. But this is not a good game for dinguses. It's just not, you know, like if you think about how uh, Overwatch is designed, for example, there's, there's, there's some, it can be very sweaty. It can be very sweaty, but there's give in both mm. the scenarios and the size of the team. Yeah. If you're if you're feeling slow, if you're very hungover, or just feeling like a bit of a dingus today, you can just stand on the fucking cart. You know what I mean? And you might not shoot anyone, but you've basically helped. You know what I mean? You've helped more than you've hindered because right. you were standing near the fucking thing yet to push. In this game, you're either like in or you shouldn't even be there. <laughs> it's very, 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 very sweaty. And that, I think, is the source of its great appeal. I think it's very... It's interesting that they're still making them like this, frankly, particularly a free-to-play game, particularly a Battle Pass-supported free-to-play game that in other ways is incentivized to be maximally accessible. But um, but yeah, it's it's. I think it, I, I would, I think that, that would go away if you're playing with friends and people can kind of like advise on things and kind of like develop strategies and stuff. With randoms, and this is probably why I shouldn't dwell on it too much, it did just just feels like a roll of the dice sometimes. Like I've had a really good team where you just sort of silently communicate with each other and just like coordinate things right. And it feels great. And then you just have those moments where it's like, oh, I'm trapped in this game now because I don't want to quit, but I can't win from this position. And that's that's the weakest thing about it, I think. Um, you kind of want to just give up, but you can't. Uh, which is ironically something I defended in Dota, but I don't defend in this. I can't explain that. <laughs> uh, when do you think you'll know whether it's good or bad? Is it is it coming to a head in any way? I yeah, I think um, I think it is good. Like I think it is. You know, I think I've I, I say that because I've now won several times. So like I feel, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think 
because so many of my frustrations with it are alleviated by playing with friends, which is a really obvious thing to do that I haven't been able to do yet, that I think punts it into good territory. Also because I'm constantly discovering ways to play it that completely change how the game feels. Like the light class can have a sword and if you're running around with a sword, it's just a different game and it's really fun. Um, And, you know, like I think the moment you know a game is good, if it's like, where like someone's like, here's a build video that uses the heavy's goo gun and riot shield deployable to make you a turtle. And you're like, yeah, that's video <laughs> games. Like, you know, that's that's the good shit. Hmm. Um, I really do like the sound. I mean, although you've made it sound quite intimidating, I do like the sound of the the amount of variables disrupting uh high level play such that yeah. maybe there's a chance that i mean like you said even though you were accompanied by two dinguses you, you were able to pull off a steal and obviously not to dismiss your 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 high level play chris but like maybe that was more possible in this game than other ones because the the playing field was somewhat leveled by the the uh uh emergent chaos otherwise occurring because the yeah I think if you are in, like, that's the thing is like, it can be a twitchy shooter, right? Like that's part of it, but actually the emerging, your ability to pass and interact with the emergent chaos strategically is really what makes a difference. And that's like, that's the part I really like, like, cause I'm not the best FPS player, certainly not anymore, like in terms of how accurate I can be, mm. but I feel like I'm quite good at reading a map. Uh, like in those kinds of that's games. That's all I've got these days, Chris. <laughs> right. And that's like, and that's the thing is like, if you can behave with intent and make it, make the right strategic calls, then you can get a lot done. And actually that's something I really appreciate about it is even when you are in a high dingus scenario, <laughs> um, you can make a difference as an individual. And that like, so actually I'll explain it. Cause I think it's, um it's revive system is really interesting. Um, so, uh, because the worst thing that can happen to you as a team is all three of you are dead at the same time. If all three of you are dead at the same time, it triggers a team wipe, which then kind of resets the respawn timer for all of you. Um, so it's like an extra timer on top of the one you would have had just for dying. Um, and it also, in the modes, in most modes, it deducts 30% of your team's cash. So that's bad. And like it's a way to knock leading teams off their spot pretty quickly just to target them and try and get them down. When a player dies they enter the respawn queue um, and they drop a statue on the floor, like a little figurine of their character. And in the competitive modes, in in the quick play modes, you can respawn eventually as many times as you want. In the quick play modes, everyone can respawn twice, I think, normally. But uh, you can be revived by your team if they go to your statue and just, you know, classic hold E on it for a certain amount of time. But because this is the finals, the statue is a physics item, which means that you can pick it up, which means that you can, um, you can't pick up enemy statues because then you could run away with them and hide them, but you can attach bombs to them. You can uh, cause them to fall into gaps between buildings with explosives and stuff like that. And with your own team's statues, you can pick them up and run away with them. And so this is, I think, really, really cool because it means that like, you know, the, the medium class, which is the one I play the most, has like a defibrillator, which instantly revives people. That's really powerful. But a really valid technique if you're playing is like the twitchy little ninja, the light class, which everybody under the age of 10 plays, as far as I can tell. Um, 
because it's also the, it's the sniper and the stealth class, which is a dangerous combination to put in the same oh, thing. Wow. Um, um, but um, that class like has you know one of its uh, selectable abilities is like an invis thing, and a way to like suddenly like save your team is to go invisible, run through a, a firefight, particularly because there are multiple teams in play grab a statue, dive out of a window, run away, hide in the bushes, res that player, go invisible again, find the other one, and then bring everyone back. And so, like, just that one thing of, like, the the revive token being a physical object in the world that you can move opens up all of these opportunities for plays that are really, really, really interesting. Or, like, I tend to equip, like, a gas mine, like a proximity gas mine, and I always try and keep one off cooldown because if I down someone and I don't know where their team is, I'll gas mine the statue. And that means that if someone tries to pick it up, it'll blow up in their face. It might kill them. But at the very least, I'll hear the damage tick yeah. and know that they're there. And that's... that's Rainbow yeah. Siege feels to that. Yeah, it is. It's it's very, very cool. And so that stuff, I think, feels really, really good when you when you pull it off or when you... Um, yeah. Um, and it, yeah, because I think the thing it's testing is your ability to pass chaos and make and strategize rather mm. than... I mean, being able to shoot accurately is certainly a thing, and there are, there are many twitchy avenues to take that in the game. But, um, yeah, very, very, very cool. I say, I, I, I initially got this game confused with the other game by Sega, where you go to space and steal um, uh, Funko Pops. <laughs> it seemed um, was that the cancelled one hyenas yes yeah it had yeah. a very similar name but th- the more i've seen in this I've, I've sort of gone on a kind of roller coaster with how i feel about vibe wise it's mm. like the first kind of reveals of of the characters you can play it's like wow that's a fucking cool character design that looks awesome and then you saw another one i'd be like wow that's that's a completely different but equally cool design and then the third one and you're like okay you can play as like ninja swan lake ballerina and then just this deluge of uh, of incredibly character designs i don't know what that that is which has seems seems to have overtaken games in a big way largely courtesy of like uh micro transactable hats and so forth but i f- i find the 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 sort of the, the jest out of a really varied playable lineup of characters to be instantly exhausting now <laughs> So hang on, are you saying that about the finals? Yes, yeah. Because the finals has the opposite of that. What? Yeah, no. There's the no, finals... there's no real unifying theme to all of the different yeah. characters you can play. They're just three. They're just normal people in pajamas, in or in like athleisure gear. Like there's no. <laughs> so the, like the cool ballerina, for example. Yeah. Is like the skin you get at the end of the current battle pass. I see. Well, I mean, I, okay, I, I don't because I haven't been able to get into a single game, so sure. I don't know how, what the actual characters look like in the levels. But in in terms of all of the media they put out in advance of the game, it's all of, it's been all of these extremely character. Right, that is uh, not the case in the game at oh, well. all, at all, <laughs> because I because to look any different from the default models takes extensive grind or paying money. The default models are incredibly placid express placid looking generic photo real ish human beings in squid game styled sort of jogging pants and a athletic top that's it everyone looks like that there is no Uh differentiation and it's really deeply uninspiring (laughs) like that was that was the other thing that like the the vibe failure was like i think i agree with you that like 
we really let the artists loose on this one. And look at this incredible range of characters can be exhausting. The opposite of that is we didn't. (laughs) 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 Like, um, and so you have, you can customize your character. Like they have done this thing, which I think is on principle laudable, which is to sort of try and depict almost like realistic human bodies in this game. So like the light character is, so the physical size differences between them is quite pronounced but within realistic human proportions. So like the light character is very slender and like 5'2". The medium is like 5'10 and pretty athletically built. And the heavy is like 6'2", 6'3", and very heavy set, but not necessarily athletically heavy set, just a big person. And those all those characters can be masculine or feminine. Um, and... There's no sort of gender selection, so it really is just masculine and feminine bodies and then masculine or feminine faces, and you can mix and match them however you want. I think that's all laudable, except it has no personality um, at all. Like, so much so that, like, I'm not really engaged with the Battle Pass, but, like, I bought a cosmetic set off the store because I played enough of it to justify spending, like, a tenner on it. And I just was so sick of everyone looking exactly the same that I just wanted to look <laughs> different. Um because it's doing, it does a lot to try and celebrate your characters, like the animations for spawning and the start where the teams are introduced and all that stuff. And it is just, it looks like someone tried, imagine a cash grab squid game cash, like a squid game knockoff video game made exclusively using Unity Asset Store assets. That's <laughs> that's what the character side oh, wow. of that's- finals looks like. That's such. That's almost mis-selling the game entirely, based on what I'd seen in the trailers. Yeah, in the trailers and stuff, you're seeing characters that are decked out in cosmetics that no one actually has. In right. Yeah. It's people like a, a, you know, a, a fox's face mask made out of a glitter ball and things like this. Yeah. All that stuff is in the store. You can buy it. Um, my character has a motorbike helmet with like a light up LED front. Um, like if I don't know, like a like. Uh, safety conscious daft punk um uh and that's fine but like it's not i mean even the stuff they're selling isn't great but i think a it's not even so much a of a diversity thing as in like a diversity of style thing it's more like just having any artistic choice made about how the humans appear would have made a big difference to me um uh, i think the yeah uh i don't well, I, yeah off to their yeah. video production team at least <laughs> yes right yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I think because I think truthfully, like, because the other thing about it, I would say, is like, it is a free to play game. It is a, uh, I think the you can ignore all the cosmetic stuff, but the time it takes I, the, to unlock all the different weapons and gadgets, I think, is a detriment. I'll say that one mark against it is like there's, uh, there's no reason. Part of the joy is experimenting with the depth and breadth of its tool set, and. It will always feel bad when you go online and it's like, here's a fascinating build I found. And just by the rate of unlocks, you know that to get the two, like the weapon and the gadget you would need to try that build is like four or five hours of play just to do that. It just mm. doesn't feel worth it. So like, I mean, you do unlock things at a clip and like I'm getting through it, but yeah, um, gating in a, in a systems rich game like this, gating access to those systems always sucks. That's my hot take on that. Um, yeah, more hats, more quickly, so people look less boring. Don't make me work quite so hard to gain access to the breadth of the game that has been made. That's my feeling on that. 
I want to play it. I really want to play it. Yeah, I'm trying to play it since like. Um, I wonder what the issue Friday. is. Yeah, but it's it's consistent. I can't even get into the tutorial. It just kicks me out. Weird. Some sort of like arcane firewall thing, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it seems to have some problems booting up as well. Like it's you know, like it's, you know, Steam says it's running, then it does the anti-cheat thing, uh, and then Steam says it's not running anymore. Mm. Like oh, maybe it's has the it crashed. And then literally five minutes later, it starts running again and boots up. <laughs> By which time I'd moved on to other things. So I was quite surprised when my screen suddenly went black and uh, the finals popped up. But Yeah, weird. Uh, yeah. It's all weird. What have you been playing, Marsh? Uh, uh, I've been playing two other games, but I'll, I'll tr- we'll try and speed run them because uh, they're possibly one of them is not very interesting. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 well, the less interesting, it is interesting. The less interesting one is Robocop, mm. um, uh, which I don't know if I could ever enthusiastically recommend as a game, but I, t- I tell you what, it is a superb education in how to ship a minimum viable product. <laughs> Hell yeah. Like you, d- you, you can pretty much hear like the squeak of the producer's whiteboard marker s- crossing off every iota of surplus content. Uh, it's just uh, that whoever did that is, uh, is, is, uh, is a genius. They're, they're a, a super producer to have made a game this, this slender without a, any kind of fat on it at all. But I like it, like as, as an indicator of that, there's, uh, many bits like this where uh, Robocop hauls a suspect off a chair and throws them into a cop car, but they don't have any of the animations for that. <laughs> so the camera just pans down and you see this guy's ass sort of like scoot across the tarmac. <laughs> and it's like, that'll do, ship it. Uh, <laughs> and I respect that, you know, at a, at a certain level. But d- like, despite those like constraints, which are obvious, um, it's actually a pretty earnest attempt to make a game which acknowledges the many and varied parts that make up the deep, profound fiction of Robocop. <laughs> so, like, I mean, you do, like, chunk an awful lot of punks and bikers with your massive gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know they're all voiced by the same guy, apparently. Oh, no, it's Robocop! Um, that is the only there's... ethical way to do this, we've established. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not getting uh, but... fucking, you're not getting fucking chat GPT. Because the, the irony there would cause the game to crash. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But I mean, actually, talking of chat, it's a very chatty game. Mm. I didn't expect this. I thought it was going to be a dumb as balls shooter. And the shooting parts are dumb as balls. But there's a lot of the game, which is like pacing back and forth across like really beautifully realized shitholes. <laughs> or these kind of bits of Detroit, which are crumbling and derelict and uh, uh, they look great. Whoever did the environment design is, is excellent. Um, and you're just solving crimes you, you, and it's, you know, with words and dialogues. And there's, there's even like long sections back at the precinct where you do things like going around and getting people to sign a get well card. <laughs> Uh, which is very oh. funny. I mean, it's not actually kind of laugh out loud funny in the way it's delivered, but there's a sort of, and it also doesn't, it doesn't seem to know that the films were a specific satire. Yeah. Like it doesn't know what that satire was directed at, but it, it knows, I mean, there's no kind of like, there's no real kind of hat tip. I, I actually watched Robocop again after, after playing this for a bit. But there's no kind of like, there's a lot of like um, newsreel footage, which sort of uh, pokes fun at sort of like the jingoism of, American power and how the media presents that uh, power being 
pursued elsewhere in the world and it's corporatism and there's militarization of the police and all these other things that are in the film Uh, and those don't really appear in the game but there is like this understanding that robocop is very silly (laughs) (laughs) and also apparently very nice yeah yeah he, he is although you can so you can be bad, good, bad Robocop or good Robocop <laughs> when you, when you, so you can, you can kind of let people off crimes and it's, 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 you, you, you um, you have to choose between like upholding the law. I am not a law. Knock, <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I mean, this is true to the film as well in some ways, because Robo, one of Robocop's directives, the ones mm. that trip him up are this dichotomy of upholding the law and serving the public trust. And uh, so, you God. know, the, so the public trust is, you know, okay, you get community service for, for you know, you're you're a wrong un, but you're on the right path, and uh, or you can just slam them in jail forever, um, or so shoot yes. them with your massive gun. Well, yeah, that's only, you, only your gun is only available in in uh, distinct action sequences, basically. I can't um, fucking hell. But it's a, it's a really odd action game because Robocop is basically a very slow moving tank. Mm. He there's uh, and you do unlock an ability to dash at one point, but it is the most static shooter I think I've played. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so strange that, that and it doesn't feel particularly good or interesting as a result of that because you are just thump 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 into a room and then blatting people as they shoot you directly and and then and then you just you know heal and uh, that's it. And you move to the next room and you blast a whole bunch of people. And it does do things that try and mix that up, but it's not terribly successful, I don't think. But yeah. Anyway, interesting. I can't um, believe he's the only good policeman. <laughs> well <laughs> the um they the the cops come out very well, I would say, oh, from shit. the game. Uh, which is uh, and though watching the film again, it's not as much of a uh, a commentary on gung-ho yeah. cops as i thought it was although the cops do seem extremely stupid like the sequence in which uh spoilers for the original robocop from 1980 something uh the sequence in which murphy gets killed initially none of that needed to happen like mm-hmm. they they're extremely stupid in the way they go after these criminals as uh like his his partner gets lamped out because she can't resist looking at a guy's penis which is which is a thing I I had obviously blanked from my mind. Um, anyway, uh, the other game I played. I re- tell me what you think this game is based on the name. Okay, the name is This Bed We Made. Oh, um, I'm gonna say lo-fi cottagecore narrative gardening game. Uh, it's a, um, a heavy romance a, element. Oh, correct. It's a it is a mystery game. Oh. Um it's, it's not that lo-fi. It's it's three dimensions, Chris. Um it appeared in my recommendations, uh, and the title just bemused and alarmed me so much <laughs> that I clicked through. And actually it turns out it's a pretty great detective game uh where you are, and this this makes sense of the title, an exceedingly nosy maid uh, in a hotel. In the in the in 1950s Montreal, and you go through people's stuff uh, fairly unabashedly as you're cleaning the rooms, and you work out what the deal is. And this seems like a Steam game tag cloud that could get you in trouble. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know quite why it was. Well, I do know why it was recommended to me because I play a lot of uh, detective games seemingly now. But mm. um, I don't, I don't know where it's come from. Really, I had that. I've heard, never heard of it before. It seems like there's. It's a reasonably substantial production. It's not a long game, but it is quite well fitted out for what it is. Um, although I have to say, I, I didn't think, I didn't think I, I was getting on with it initially because. Because I'm very law-abiding, Chris. Sure. If I were a maid in a 1950s Montreal, Simply I would not make the bed and leave. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would. Again, not being a grass, big, big factor in your game choices. <laughs> well, it's not. It's not only that, but like the game also sort of threatens you at the very beginning with the prospect of your uh, of your smallest actions leading to terrible large consequences so i was like additionally terrified by that warning text that the game was going to you know uh do something like have a somebody burst in on me while i was going through their underwear or whatever and yeah i couldn't engage with its premise <laughs> as enthusiastically as i thought it expected me to i'm really sorry but, Marsh, but in my imagination you're still robocop in this and it's <laughs> <laughs> just slowly standing up from behind the bed <laughs> mouth down yeah. turned in mild concern anyway sorry go on <laughs> well i mean suffice to say the game has to do quite a lot there for to get me to be invested in the in the premise of rooting through people's stuff mm. um and it succeeds because very very early on in the game you go go into clean a room, go into the bathroom, and you find that the bathroom has been made into a makeshift dark room, which is full of photos of you, oh. which is just a, it, a, such an effective hook because it then makes your investigation of everybody's business like a matter of personal safety and necessity, and not just of nosiness. And uh, that that carried me through into the larger mystery as it unravels. I won't say what that is. Uh, but like there's lots of evidence you can find obviously it's very tactile the game uh well you know fixing bed sheets and scrubbing bathtubs and whatnot um and all of that evidence is meticulously logged in the ui but beyond like just simply locating the stuff in the rooms which isn't a terribly hard challenge and there are some like minor puzzles in there as well it's really the inferences that you make from that information that are the the real puzzle um, and it's a very, it's very satisfyingly gauged at the right level of, uh, you know, um, blatantness mm. that you, you do have to do some thought brain work in order to put the pieces together in your head, but it's not so obscure that you're having to make huge leaps of, of, of logic or, uh, it's, a, it's like I said, it's a short game. I think I got through it in under four hours. And there are stark consequences for what you discover and how, but I'm not sure to what degree the game ultimately branches as it promises to do at the beginning. It seems like it does quite a good job of soft gating your progress on on discovering key stuff. I th maybe even hard gates something so you're reasonably guaranteed to come away with a rough picture of what's going on. Mm. Um, but even then, in the end, I'm not really sure that what you discover is actually as important as your performance in a very final conversation tree, <laughs> which you can then bungle uh, by making what I thought were very uncontroversial sounding choices. Like 
the differentiation between the branches of that tree that are presented to you were not sufficient for me to tell how those words would affect the outcome, which feels like they 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 fell at the the last hurdle really and it's particularly true because i looked up video walkthroughs to see how other people had done it and none of them had got got a better ending than i did uh despite presenting more or less the same knowledge and i don't know there was just something about it i felt like i left feeling the game like well you know the consequences aren't on me like i knew all the stuff and i gave answers that any normal person would and it seemed to decide that the person i was talking to was going to make these decisions anyway. So I, I don't I don't really know how else it can turn out. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting one, really, isn't it? Like, Because I, I have played, uh, we don't have to go too deep into this, but over my Christmas break, I played almost all of Pentiment now, mm. um, which obviously I appreciate is I did the tour of games I should have played a lot longer ago and also Marsh's Games of the Year by playing Pentiment and Cocoon. Um, <laughs> but one thing I found quite quickly with Pentiment is I relaxed into a mode of playing it where I sort of accepted that I was going to A, fuck things up and B, miss things, you know, mm, like yes. where I started to embrace that feeling of like, well, I'm just trying my best as the mode in which I was playing it rather than a failure to play it, uh, yeah. play it correctly, which is something I think it shows with Disco Elysium, actually, that feeling of like. I'm just fucking trying, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I think Pentiment does some very interesting things with like, you know, I think Pentiment avoids that feeling of like a massive escalation off a, a reasonable thing in, you know, you knowing that the information you have is imperfect and having to weigh up making decisions with it regardless, knowing that those decisions will have major consequences, if that makes sense. Right. Like, yeah. you know, I think, I don't know, it might be that I'm bad at Pentiment, but I have never found myself able to feel fully confident in the judgments that the game is asking me to commit to. But I yes, take that I, as I was the very game. uncertain about whether I was simply bad at it initially. Yeah. But I think having played it now, there is no better there's there's a low ceiling on how well you can do. <laughs> yeah, it's about it's about achieving, you know, the the point of the game is the dramatic tension of not having perfect information, right? Yeah. Rather than the thing that is often the case in CRPGs, which is there is a perfect ending. You just got to mm. work harder for it. Um, but yeah, like I think it's interesting when games do that thing of flashing up, like your choices will have consequences. Whereas actually the, it, the more helpful pop-up for me would be, there's no getting this right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I left this game wondering if there is a perfect solution that you yeah. can work out by picking up a sufficient number of clues or whether there, there is a, a inbuilt unknowability to it. I suspect it's the latter. And it would be more useful to know <laughs> that than to be threatened with the possibility of, of dramatic consequences altogether. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, the, the thing I would say is like, this is a reactive story where the journey is the point. There are no wrong decisions. Go for it. You know what I mean? Like, well, there are, mm -hmm. but you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing rather than, but that's interesting because you're trying to train players out of a mindset developed elsewhere, which is ever the challenge, right? Like yeah. people sort of assume that the, there must be a S rank ending. Yeah. yeah. An achievement. Uh, the, yeah. Um, but I kind of, um, yeah, the, I sort of I, I did enjoy that about Pentiment. The or have I am enjoying it about Pentiment. The sort of um, I definitely have hit a point with it now, and I won't say anything for spoilers. Cause I think it's a very spoilable game, but where I feel like I feel I Chris feel like I have figured out what's going on, but 
I have not done the right things to be able to exercise that belief in game mm. in any way. I mean, I've angled myself towards this thing. So, and that the fact that it's not responding to my desire to press in a particular direction might mean that I, Chris, am wrong when I haven't finished it yet, so I don't know. But when I get a bit further, if that that's a potential frustration, like where it's sort of the, the mm. deliberate sort of imperfectness of your approach prevents you from using your actual agency to make progress, if you know what I mean, right? Where it's like, Chris figured this out, but Andreas Mahler didn't. You know what I mean? Right, like, yeah. Yeah, but... Um, that aside, I, I think that sort of intentional, like, um, I've just fucked it up is a, it's actually, I mean, as, as an angle, it's actually really, um, being an imperfect detective is something that games are really good at that, like, whodunit fiction would struggle with, right? Mm, like, yeah. you know, like a traditional whodunit, it, it'd be very unsatisfying if Poirot was just fucking wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like... I think there are where <laughs> stories like that, but if it's like everyone's looking to him to make a decision, he points at someone. They're saying it couldn't. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And they go to the gallows, and he and he's just that they're right. <laughs> like it's just like <laughs> yeah. you shouldn't have trusted this to a mercurial little Belgian man. You just shouldn't. <laughs> like he's very fucking charming, but he was incredibly wrong about who killed Granddad. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, should have trusted it to RoboCop. Um, <laughs> his little gray cells are chrome oh, that's, this, that's the crossover fiction that I'll be dreaming of <laughs> there was one other thing I wanted to mention yes, about that game Before, I'd like to hear more about your experience with Pentiment but I did want to mention this because I want to get your take on it as well particularly as a, a fan of Baldur's Gate 3 and also the Mass Effect series um, which is that in this game, in this bed you made, uh, oh. you can um, you can cultivate one of two accomplices in your investigation. And the game offers you lots of opportunities pretty much out of the gate to make that relationship romantic. Mm -hmm. And while in one, you can choose between two different accomplices, and while one of those romances you can have resonates with other parts of the story, in ways which are meaningful, I felt like it was pushing it a little bit. And I was just thinking, well, isn't it just nice to have friends? You know? <laughs> like, I'm not, not one of those mad Zuma broods who think there should, you know, shouldn't be any sex in films anymore. Um, but I feel like this game's haste to support romantic options mechanically means that they are forced to be overly permissive in the way that they present that because you don't want to enable players to act out being a sex pest or worse you know that's a terrible thing mm. for your game to include as a fantasy so in the end you have all of these characters in Baldur's Gate particularly who are just desperate to fuck all the time <laughs> and and I don't you know I, I just don't know that that's the kind of way you want to think about co-workers <laughs> that's that's why me too <laughs> happened you know mm. and there are people in life who, who you could be good friends with but for whom a romantic relationship is just not within the possibility space like it isn't a choice you make or it's yeah. not an outcome of like a successful branching dialogue puzzle that you haven't quite cracked yet. They just aren't available for you in that way. And that's okay. And shouldn't these games which map relationships reflect that? <laughs> so, I mean, yes. It's, it's, it's such an interesting question because it's like uh, games by design are like high, well, particularly these kinds of games, like narrative-driven role-playing games or mystery games. 
like high agency and relatively solipsistic, right? You know, you are momentarily the most important person in the world. Like that that scene you describe of finding the uh, dark room with photos of you in it is like that encapsulated, right? Like to the point you made about, hey, that recenters the story around you and your personal safety in a way that makes your agency in the game feel better to uh, use. Mm-hmm. Um, it also is kind of confirmation on the game's part that like, yeah, you're the main character of the universe right now, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> right. yeah, um, and which is often the fantasy of these games. And that is an accepted genre convention across most axes that you measure right, in terms of like why you're fighting all these people and why it falls on you to save the world or whatever. But it's weird in a romantic context. It just is because you're the only person in the world with any agency, which means you're the world, only, basically the only person in the world who can consent to anything. Um, which means that if the potential romance options are out there waiting for you to take, then that's weird in terms of power dynamics in one direction. Or if the, the Baldur's Gate solution is basically the only one that's readily available to the genre, which is like you're just fucking fending people off. You know what I mean? Like you've been you've been on the banks of the river Kayonthar for two minutes and you're fending <laughs> Lazel off with a broom. Like it's it's <laughs> You know, it's it's the it's 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 the only fun way to make it happen is to be like because Baldur's Gate's an interesting example of like does a really good job I think of giving your companions all reasons to stick together. You've got a worm in your brain um, while letting them all feel like they each of them individually could be the protagonist of the game because they literally can if yeah. you choose to play yeah. as them. And the the re- the reason they follow you is like never really explained. It's just like you've got that energy of the person who cares the most about solving this. You know what I mean? It's like trying to book a restaurant for a large group of people where it's like, you just find yourself arranging it because you're the person who asked. You know what I mean? Mm. Like if you're with like an annoying number of people, let's say nine and you say, do we want to get some dinner? And then everyone looks at you like the person who's going to organize it. That is the, that is what it feels like to be the pal- the protagonist of Baldur's Gate or a Bioware game. I think it's, oh fuck, no, it's me, isn't it? Oh shit. Jesus, okay. <laughs> oh, is everyone okay with like, I don't know. Is everyone okay with Las Iguanas? And they're like, oh no, I don't like Mexican food. Like, oh, for fuck's sake. And then it's like, you know, Jeremy will remember that. And then, you know, he doesn't fuck you later. Anyway, um, there's... <laughs> Um, that's the, the jokey point, but like, I, I think the, I think it's sort of, it's hard to combine player agency with that. I think you can tell a story about a romance where you and the game are role playing, right? Like interactive fiction where it's about that and seeing it evolve or where your character has a pre-existing relationship and the game asks you to experience elements of it as an empathetic function, but where there's a lot of choice involved or a choice of romantic partners, I think it's weird. Cause the other side of it is, I was thinking about this recently, like, I think, Generally speaking, um, it's a high like the the position you advance that like not all you know the thing that makes a relationship potentially a romantic relationship isn't high initiative on part of one person in that dynamic right. Mm. Um, it is not a skill check <laughs> or making the right kind of strategic choices. There are a whole bunch of dudes on the internet who would tell you that it is, and those yes. men are the fucking worst. <laughs> So, you know, I think games have to be careful not to accidentally foster a worldview where that's the correct attitude, right? Like, there's actually, like, I was seeing it today, there's a website, I was looking on a games website, and it was like, here are all the 
romance options in Baldur's Gate 3 and how to pursue them and what each character likes and dislikes and what kind of attitude to adopt. And that's fine in the context of the video game. People want to know how to avoid closing off narrative options to themselves and stuff. I get it. In any other context, that's the creepiest thing imaginable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But I mean, to bring it back to Pentiment, did, did you get the achievement for shagging all the monks? Uh, I haven't shagged any monks. I would despite like I was, that was a joke so you, you can't, you can't. Oh really? Monks. Oh fuck! I would have. Um, <laughs> I, I, at least I don't think you can. I I chose like hedonist as like one of my like his sort of vice. You know what I mean? Like where you know, it was sort of Marla's background. And but the way I am playing him is very like compact, like empathetic and a bit wet, frankly. And so it's this strange combination of people saying like, oh, they used to be a mad shagger and like him going like, I'm so sorry that happened in a way that is uh, almost too real, actually, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, uh, yeah, so uh, that's good. What else am I thinking about Pentiment? I don't, yeah, like there's a lot of wonderful things about Pentiment. I think... I want to finish it before I try and render an opinion on it because uh, I've been enjoying it as a kind of slow burn thing. Great, great Christmas couch Steam Deck game. I will say that. Mm. Just um, just lying sideways, absorbing the stories. You know, one point my mum helped me solve uh, one of the little like sort of cipher puzzles. And that was like a genuine little moment of like Christmas gaming. Quite sweet, really. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have any any questions about that experience? I mean, I don't really have any. I'm desperate to know uh, what point you are, but I think we'll have to discuss that offline. So um, yeah, I, I think so I'm probably the halfway thing. through. Um, I think, but it depends. Um, I'm yeah. I'll 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 tell you about it later, and uh, I probably won't share this. Otherwise, Cocoon's good, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, really is. I finished that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll say this, and this is beautiful, made me feel very smart, uh, incredibly satisfying. I played through it in like three sessions, I think. And um, I really love that it ends, you know? Like, I think it's a really great measured arc for a thing that was very satisfying and got to the end. Because I think I'm too dumb for most puzzle games of this sort, frankly, like a Stephen Sausage Roll or something like that. My brain just fizzles at a certain point and I see a struggle past a certain point to engage with them. Whereas cocoon gripped me um, for, for its duration. And I thought it was great. And then when I finished it, I realized that there's secrets you could go and discover. And I made my peace with not doing that. Yes. I did see an article saying all about the, the super secret secrets. And I was like, eh. <laughs> cool. <laughs> that's fine. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad that's out there for the people who want to do that. But yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm trying to think if I have a a, a pentiment take other than uh, I'm glad that I'm glad to hear you say that me getting everything wrong is actually the way you're supposed to play it and not just <laughs> like a kind of skill issue. <laughs> like, you know. Um, wow. I mean, I, I that's the way I played it uh, as one of the, you know, the, uh, is it the 15th centuries? 15th century? So. 15th century's worth detectives, but um, maybe there's a, an alternate version of Andreas who absolutely aces this all. 
And that's a good it's a good example of like electing yourself as the protagonist of a game and you definitely shouldn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like sticks his hand up and like, I'll solve it. And like, well, you? Like, I'll no. be responsible for Jeremy's food choices this evening. Yeah. No. Exactly. Jeremy will remember that. <laughs> Is that all the pod we have? That's certainly everything that's going to emerge from me this evening. That is the end of the podcast. If you'd like to send us a question, we may answer them eventually. You can send us a question to questions at crankcrowbar.com. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a wobbly one. <laughs> uh, all these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube. You can find those and other stuff by us at youtube.com slash crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our backers on Patreon. You can back us, too, if you like, at patreon.com slash crowbar, Or you can join our lovely Discord community, uh, the link for which is on our website, crowbar.com. Don't forget to vote for your game of the year. Mm. That is currently in the offing, thanks to Kane and his hard work, as always. Um, and that's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Chris Thurston, and it occurs to me that if we were to generate any part of this podcast to save us some grief, it could be the outros. Because we <laughs> we decided 10 plus years ago at this point that for some reason we wouldn't just say the same thing at the every end of everything, right? Like most other content creators of any kind have the thing they say at the end of their video or podcast. For some reason, we bake this cake from scratch every time, and 90% of the time, it's fucking awful. Well, so, you know what, Chris? Yeah. I am actually trying to say the same thing each time. I just fail oh, really? consistently. <laughs> I've, uh, you know, as we've been doing this for over 10 years, I'm still not good at it, I think. I think I've made my peace with that now. I think that's even more special, then. Yeah. I think I think that is... That's the know, kind of imperfection. Yeah, the raw ch- naturalism that a chat bot couldn't, couldn't ever emulate. Right, yeah. You're chipping away at that block of marble for 10 years. And what... The shape that is emerging slowly is beautiful. And it's a penis, pointless. let's be honest. <laughs> <It's> a pe- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good night, Chris. Good night, Marsh.